welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker, and in this episode, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Bill Robertson, Cotton Extension Agronomist with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. And we're going to keep digging into some of the soil health practices that some of the cotton producers he works with are utilizing in their production systems. And we're really going to get into the nuts and bolts of the management. So stay tuned for a lot of information. You might even want to take notes. Enjoy. The content in each of these episodes is so great. At the same time, we were recording via Zoom and there are a few places where the internet wasn't so strong. So just bear with us in those spots. It's definitely still worth listening to. You know, if you look at what NRCS has to to ensure soil health, and one is to armor the soil or to keep it covered, and uh, that helps hold moisture. Um, in our row crop, it it does some other things too. Helps uh, take out the big swings that we see sometimes in temperatures, and and it's very interesting. You know, I visit with Larry Steckel in Tennessee and Tom Barber here in Arkansas, and they talk about the big swings in temperatures uh, stimulate pigweed germination. And so keep the soil covered or keep the, you know, keep it, keep it armored. Um, Another is to have living roots in the soil as many months out of the year as you can. And that's one of the the big things for me is, you know, I'm wanting to, to make sure that I have something I'm trying, I'm feeding the soil microbes as much as I can. And when I talk about the soil microbes, a lot of times I talk about the the bugs in the soil because of the livestock people, we talk about the bugs in the gut on the cow and the, those bugs are kind of doing the same thing in the cow because the cow, you know, cattle can eat, um, uh, sometimes poor quality hay and the, the bugs in the gut help chop that up so that her rest, her digestive system can, can utilize that. And those some of the same things that the bugs in the soil are doing, but I'm going to feed those to have a good, healthy population. Um, and, and another thing that they have is, is to increase diversity, not only in your cash crop. You know, when I came to Arkansas, this, this is very interesting, Beth, in 1995, about 90, 95, 90 to 95% of all the cotton in Arkansas, it was cotton after cotton after cotton after cotton. A lot of this ground never had anything on it but cotton. Um, you know, we, we had very little diversity in our cash crop, and then we got to where we was having more diversity in our cash crop, and, and cotton yields, even two years behind corn, are so much greatly improved. They, they really benefit from that. But then to have diversity in our cover crop, is, is a big thing too. And so when we do that, um, those first three things, I think we're, we're building, uh, we're improving, uh, our soil health, we're building soil structure. And the fourth thing is to, to not tear it up. Don't do deep tillage. You know, there's times, you know, we rub the fields, there's things we do, we can do some shallow tillage and not really go backwards on, on building soil health. But when we get into our deep tillage, a lot of times, you know, we can destroy in one operation what it takes us years to build up. 
And then, you know, especially when we start looking at regenerative ag and some other things is introducing livestock into that operation is the fifth thing that some people look at. And I tell you what, I think, I think that just kickstarts everything else that makes, makes everything work so much faster because they introduce just another level of diversity into the whole, the whole system. And so, you know, when I talked about the improving the, the health and, and the population of the, of the bugs in the soil, you know, I started thinking about, you know, when I, when I terminate my cover crops and what cover crops I'm planting. Because, you know, when we put up hay for livestock, we're, we're kind of trying to hit that sweet spot between tonnage of hay and nutritional value of hay. As we cut, you know, grasses, the older they get, the protein gets lower and the lignin or the fiber content goes up. And so when you let, when you let a grass, whether it's cereal rye or, or rye grass, whatever we're growing for, hay, the more mature you let it get, the less the protein is. So it becomes, it becomes the, the feed value becomes less and less, but you get way more tons. And so a lot of people tend to focus on tons of hay and not the feed quality of hay. And so that's the reason why a lot of times we do do forage tests on our hay. And so, um, you know, when you get, you know, when you look at, at terminating cereal rye, say at planting, when you're way past anthesis, your carbon nitrogen ratio on, on cereal rye is probably like pretty close to 80 to one. So a lot of carbon, not much nitrogen. And you think about, okay, if you're going to feed that hay to a cow, you'd starve her to death if you tried to overwinter her. You know, if you look at crude protein less than 8% on hay, you'll starve them to death. And so, uh, and so you get into a situation like that with poor quality hay, we put out lick tubs, which has molasses and, and urea in it to give them some energy, to give them some extra protein. And so we're helping to feed the bugs in the gut on that cow so that she can make use of that poor quality hay. And so when I'm looking at, at planting uh, my cover crop, if I'm doing just a straight cereal rye cover crop, then think, I think about when I'm going to terminate that, it kind of needs to be like if I was going to cut that for hay. And so when the heads start popping the boot on that and we get full head exertion, then I think that's kind of that sweet spot where we're, we're getting a good levels of residue that we'll keep in the soil. But then the nutritional value of that for the bugs in the soil won't be so poor that our, that our microbes are robbing, <laughs> robbing nitrogen from the plant. And so we kind of hit that sweet spot, just like we were putting it for hay. But I know some people that, that are very uh, set on wanting to plant green. And so if you're going to plant green, then... Uh, you know, think about what the hay is going to be like at planting. So if we do that, then we better have some diversity in our, in our cover crop because we need, we need something else to go along with all that straw we're going to get with the cereal rye and some of our other grasses so that, um, so we have decent hay that we're feeding the bugs in the soil. So we need to have some lagoons. We need to have some brass because we need to have some other things in there. And so a lot of farmers, when they first start doing cover crops, you know, they'll use, they'll use cereal rye which is kind of, you know, a lot of people say that, that cereal rise, the, the cover crop of training wheels, because you put the seed out there and you get a, any kind of decent rain The you know, I have had a failure with cereal rye. I planted cereal rye in some, some very dry sandy type soils and got about a quarter of an inch of rain. So I got just enough rain for the cereal rye to germinate, but there wasn't enough moisture in the soil for it to, to grow. So it just sprouted and died. 
But anyway, if you got a little bit of soil moisture, you put cereal rye on the ground, you get a rain, it's going to come up and it's very easy to terminate. And so it's easy to get started and it's easy to, to terminate when you want to terminate. So that's, that's a good crop to learn with. But if you're just going to have straight cereal rye, there's not a lot of diversity there. So, you know, terminate it at the right time is, is I think is important. And so there's, there's even, you know, what cover crops you want to want to plant. A lot of it depends on what you, what you want out of a cover crop, but a lot of times the amount of diversity you have out there will also turn also dictate or it does to me when we want to terminate it, but just having that diversity out there is just really, really, really a big thing. And some of the people I know that are very serious about their cover crops and having diversity, see a, a, that diversity carry forward into the season especially when we start looking at insect populations, they look at, at the, the, the improved level of diversity they have in their beneficial insect pest. And so there's, there are a lot of other things and just like meat and steak every, every day for, for five years that, you know, I need a little more diversity than that. So the bugs and the soil enjoy, I think the bugs and the soil really enjoy that diversity too. So a lot of things just build off of one another. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that was really helpful and in-depth information about how technical it can be when you're starting with cover crops and trying to be very specific about how they're managed and, and very thoughtful and intentional about what you're choosing, yeah. how you're planting it, when you're terminating, and all the factors that, that go in when someone's really, um, really aiming for a specific goal with these yeah. soil health management tools. But, but I think thinking of that is what kind of quality of hay you're going to put up is, is, you know, I think goes along because we're doing the same thing, whether we're feeding hay to a cow or the bugs in, in the soil, you know, getting that to where our plants can better utilize what's out there. Yeah, it, it definitely gives it a very visual and, um, you know, an important measuring stick. If it's, if it's not just a seed in the ground. Um, but talking about it by quality of feed is a great way to give, to give um, what you want the end goal of the cover crop to be just a really visual, visual and important um, characteristic, characteristic to aim for. So I do think it's helpful. It's very simplified too. Um, one question I did have was when you're working with farmers who are who are wanting to start managing for soil health and using some of these tools for the first time. And they've already kind of got a compaction issue. Um, do you take a different approach, especially if, if they're very hesitant to remove tillage from the system? You know, Beth, that, that is a great question. And, and that's a question that I had when I first started doing cover crops because, you know, just, to be just to be honest about this when when i first started dealing with cover crops i had way more questions than than i had answers for and, and I, I guess i still have way more questions but there were a lot of things that people would tell me he said bill whenever whenever i started using cover crops then i stopped doing deep tillage because the hard pan went away and you know there you know that my my you know to try to be politically correct on this, my, my BS flag went right at the flagpole. I said, okay, come on, man. Where's that hard pan going to go? What's going to happen? And so 
the the very first time that that I did used cover crops in row crop, I went into some fields that just had a hard pan like you would not believe about 16. You know, when when we harvested the cotton, you, you could not get a soil probe, a, a metal rod or anything past about six inches. And I said, how is one winter, uh, fall and winter of a cover crop going to take that away? So we worked with a farmer. We split a field in half and we did cover crop on one side. And then we farmed on the other side, the way we normally farm with deep tillage and all that. Okay. On the side that we did the cover crop on, uh, he had, uh, one of those little DMI rigs. You know, it's a high residue subsoiler. It's got a big chisel, the knife that goes down in the top of the row. It's got a little point on it. Kind of looks like a little airplane. You know, it kind of lifts the soil up, shatters the hard pan, and drops it back down. And the key on that is being able to run it deep enough that you don't get clods, you know, come up above the soil surface because it shatters it under the ground, but it holds the residue on top. So you really don't see a lot of bare soil on top. And so we had the right kind of fall to run those. So I put some of those strips out in the field because I just knew, well, you know, one of my first questions was, okay, I know I've got a hard pan. Do I need to dress the hard pan and then plant a cover crop or can I just plant a cover crop? And so I did that. And by the time we got into between squaring and flowering the next year, I, you know, you go out there with a penetrometer or a soil probe or a metal rod, whatever you want to do. And I could not tell where I run the DMI rig and where I didn't. And so the amount of diesel and the amount of, oh gosh, and, and the amount of time that it takes to run something like that more than paid for the cost of the cover crop seed. But that was one of the first BS flags that, that I addressed when I went out there, there were still a lot of, a lot of other things. And, and I find it, you know, they're right. And then when we go in and look at this and then, you know, an OCD guy like me, you know, the, the technical, you know, we try to figure out, okay, why is it doing this? And a lot of it goes back to, to the soil microbes. But so we did, so bottom line is I did not have to worry about trying to do something to that hard pan because I did cereal rye. And by the time planting come around, I just, you know, you go out there with a shovel and, and dig those plants up. And, and the top foot was just a solid mass of cereal rye roots. And down below that, you just cereal, you know, I just, I could not believe the amount of roots that were there. And so. How it, dense was the seeding rate and how much biomass did you get on that? Because, you know, obviously it was a really effective stand of cover crop too. It wasn't just like we put out 20 pounds, emergence was okay. We terminated early. Obviously it went in at the right time. It was the right seeding rate and you got a pretty good stand. Yeah, we got a good stand. And this is one of those sometimes, uh, you know, beginner's luck, blind hog finding an acre and whatever. But anyway, <laughs> but our seeding rate, we, 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 we aimed for a bushel an acre and 56 pounds of cereal rye. We started off with straight cereal rye kind of got my feet wet with that and then started looking at other things, but we shot for a bushel and ended up about 50 pounds and we got a good stand. We got a grain and we got a good, nice uniform stand. But you know, when you, when you look at things, when I compare broadcasting to going out with a drill, a lot of times we can cut our seeding rate in half with a drill because we're going to get a, a much greater percentage of our seed up when we, when we get some soil on top of it. And so, um, 
but Sarai just broadcasting by itself. Uh, I shoot for about a bushel and, and, you know, and hope to get, you know, 50 pounds. So that's, that's always worked well for me. Okay. So in that field, did you, did you mention how it was planted? I might've mis- just missed that. Uh, we, we put it out with a fertilizer sprayer. Okay. We just spread it out with a fertilizer. So we, we, we harvested our cotton, shredded the stalks, went out there with a fertilizer spreader and spread it and spread our seed. Okay. So, so, you know, the other component you mentioned at the beginning that you really like to have the alignment on when you're looking at practices that build sustainability into the cotton production system is that profitability component. So for folks that have adopted some of these, you know, soil health tools and practices that, that you've been working with, um, where do they see profitability kick in? I mean, you mentioned taking away the subsoiler, obviously that you said paid for itself, but what are some other areas, whether it be equipment, time, labor, because obviously there's a big time and equipment investment too, in changing a production system to incorporate cover crops now. Yeah. You know, there's, there's like two, two or three, I guess, different camps out there. But I think some of the ones that they're that very serious about doing the cover crops and, and are focused on getting their cover crops seeded and getting them up. You know, a lot of them have gotten away from bigger tractors and they have smaller tractors. Um, they're, they see kind of the benefits that improving soil health does and, and, and they cut some of their inputs back. But when I work with farmers and, and we've, we've done this the last few years in our verification program that will work with farmers that are interested in cover crops, but haven't really used them a lot. So really don't know. And so we, we look at splitting a field. And so we try to incorporate the use of cover crops. And a lot of times we start off with straight cereal rye. So we can kind of get built some experience and then uh, evolve into a blend that works best for them. But when we first start working with farmers like that, then, uh, you know, we add the cost of the cover crop seed, but then it's hard to get them to not spend money on other things. And so when we look at, look at our budget at the end of the year, we spent more money on the cover crop side than we did the other side. And so basically we just added the cost of the cover crop seed to the budget. And, um, when, when we look at yield improvements in a dry year where we have to do a lot of irrigation, then I've seen a 10% bump in, in cotton lint yield where we use a cover crop because we're able to harvest more of the water. Sometimes we're able to, to eliminate irrigations. And, uh, as we get deeper into this and then, it's pretty common for us to eliminate irrigations, but to start off with, um, you know, it's hard to get a farmer to do things different on one side, because, you know, if you look at the current economic, uh, environment of cotton and not just cotton, but almost everything else, if we're not producing a record yield, then, then we're not, we're not, we're not gaining ground. And unfortunately on cotton, you know, if you're just producing the state average, you're just barely paying, you're just barely paying your out-of-pocket expenses to grow cotton. You know, you got, you know, you know, and that's, you know, we got to pay rent. There's no return to management and overhead and all that. So it's hard to get a farmer to not do things that they've always done. But when we come in and improve soil health, 
there's some things, you know, and, and I see this, there's some things that we do in a cotton patch that, that we, you know, especially here in the mid South, we, you know, a lot of times we bump the, the university recommendation on potash because, you know, it's not uncommon for us because of our poor rooting system to see potash deficiencies. Well, it's not, you know, when we go out and, and we do some deep samples, it's our potash deficiencies aren't because the potash isn't in the field. It's in the field, but we just don't have a root system to pick it up. And so when we do cover crops and we do other things to improve water infiltration, so our water goes deeper, where the water goes deeper, we have deeper active roots. So it greatly extends the effective rooting zone of the plant. And so our nutrient use efficiency goes up. And so there's a lot of things that we do. And, 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 you know, Beth, sometimes I think of this and I've used this example before and people may be getting tired of hearing this, but a lot of times, you know, when, when I, when I think about cotton production, the way we do cotton, you know, with conventional system, uh, conventional tillage, or even, you know, most conventional tillage is, is reduced tillage, but uh, we're not using a cover crop or anything like that. I think of it as like having a basketball team with one star player. And that cotton plant is the star player. That cotton plant's having the the carry the weight of the whole rest of the team. And so, if when we get into the heat of the battle, a lot of times in our our fragipan type soils, we have a root system that goes deep really early. But then, as it starts getting drier, uh, we have a hard pan that develops. Our rainfall doesn't go very deep a lot of times in in those soils. When I put a a watermark soil moisture sensor at, at 6, 12, and 18 inches deep. Then when we start getting into the heat of the battle on cotton, a lot of times a single rainfall event or a single irrigation will only go down to that 16th sensor. The 12-inch sensor doesn't even know what happened. But on the cover crop side, the 6, 12, and 18-inch sensor knows that we got a rain or that we irrigated. So that just gives you an example on the, on the difference in, in our root systems on the plant. Because the root, the, the active roots that are doing all the heavy lifting are going to be where the water is. So we're not getting water deep. They're not going to be deep down there. And so if, so they're not able to use that potash down there. So we, we put extra potash. There's a lot of things that we do extra because we got a basketball team with just one star player. So everything has to be right there when that person, when that player needs it. So then when we go in and we build soil health. I think of that, especially in our silome soils. Again, we greatly increase water infiltration. We greatly increase rooting. Then we get the soil microbes involved and look at the mycorrhizae fungi. You know, they can greatly extend the root system of plants several thousand times. And they're so much better at getting phosphorus to the plant and, and even potash to the plant than the plant can do by itself. And so, you know, the plant, the plants and the, and the microbes barter one another, the plants give them, you know, they get energy, you know, the, the, the microbes get energy from the plant, microbes supply water and nutrients back to the plant kind of in their bartering system. So the plants are more efficient. So we do all these other things. Then the next thing you know, we got like a basketball team with three or four really good basketball players. And when you think about those teams and you see those teams on TV and all that, those teams are the ones that are really hard to beat that have a lot of really good basketball players on the same team and that work together and get the teamwork. So now we, we do things to improve soil health. We build this teamwork. Now we have to figure out, okay, how can we, how can we better manage to reduce costs to take advantage of this teamwork? And I feel like that's kind of where we are right now with, with my program and where the university is 
that we need, I think we need to do more work is, okay, we can build this teamwork. Now what can we do to, to reduce input costs? Because I talked about a while ago, you know, in a really dry year, then I can see 9 to 10% improvement in lint yield. But in a wet year, it, sometimes it's a wash. And so, you know, I look at this long term, I've got some long term data and, and, you know, I'm seeing, you know, three to 5% increase in lint yield. Well, as a farmer, when they've got their money and their, their life tied up in this, they can't make wholesale changes just based on a yield improvement that may or may not happen. We've got, you know, we look at soil health, we improve soil health, whether it's a wet year or dry year, but we don't improve lint yield uh, as much in a wet year as we can in a dry year. And so we have to, we have to look at the other end too. So we have to figure out how can we grow this cotton cheaper? And those are some of the things that we're looking at trying to do and, and looking at our plant population in the field. Okay. If we got better teamwork of the things that are going on below the soil surface, do we need as many plants? On above the, the above our soil surface, because look at our look at how much do we spend on planting seed and cotton? You know, we can spend a hundred, hundred twenty dollars an acre for planting seed. So if we can cut our planting seed back, say twenty percent, thirty percent, that's real money coming back in our pocket. Because can we do that? <clears throat> because we have that better teamwork of things below the soil surface. And so there's other things. If we got that, can we cut our fertilizer back? Because I know one of the biggest things that I nearly always see when I improve soil health and comparing one side to the other, if I'm still doing the same fertility program, you know, the nitrogen fertility program that he was doing on this side, I've got way too much nitrogen. I've got to cut nitrogen back because I have a, a way more effective root system. And so there's, there's things like that we got to figure out and get comfortable with spending less money on and not hurt ourselves because where we are right now, we can't, we can't afford to do things to give us less yield because, you know, that yield is, is what's keeping us in business. And so it's tough. We got, you know, the farmers, you know, we have to sell the farmers on it, but we got to sell the landlords. We got to sell the bankers. There's, there's a whole lot of people that we got to do some education on. Yeah, you mentioned so many important things. I do like the the basketball metaphor um, because I think it also helps kind of show show how how soil health is building the resilience of the system too to some of those environmental risks. If you've got more more players working together when when the times get tough. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the Reach website at reach.msstate. Edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.